Hey, you're looking good today. You doing well? Yeah. Four of you are. Two of you nodded. I have a big job ahead of me today. And some of you said, and uh, an amen, preacher, if you can't get it done in 20 minutes or so, trust me, it won't get better. So I better, better get right at this thing. My name is Jared. If we're meeting for the first time, uh, uh, one of the pastors, I get to give the talk today and get to launch a whole new series. I'm really glad that you're here right at the start of this four-part series. We're going to wrap it up on, uh, on Easter Sunday. And we're going to be talking about one thing we know for sure about God. And today we're going to talk about God accepting us. All of us had a beginning point. Uh, most of us don't know much about that, and we're grateful. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah, my family, uh, I'm the fourth of four kids. Uh, I'm by far the youngest. There's a big gap between three and four. Some of you were started on purpose. Some of us were started by mistake. My family's very happy to remind me of that. I have fairly high self-regard. I let them know that they're lucky that God loved them so much that he blessed them with me, even though I wasn't invited from the, from the get-go. So we're going we're to be talking about starting points in this series, and today our starting point of faith. Everything in your life had a starting point. At some point, your, your career in school had a starting point. Sometime your career had a starting point. If you're retired, you thought retirement had a starting point, but you haven't found it yet. But your faith has a starting point. And today as we talk about one thing we know for sure about God, that he's accepting of us, we're going to take a look right at the very beginning of people who, who expressed faith in Christ in just the most remarkable way. And you'll find some parallels and similarities in your own experience as well. And I, and I think today and through this series that, that what you're going to experience is that wherever you are in your faith story of just starting with Christ, or maybe decades old, that you're going to discover some things about God that just draw you in to having a richer and fuller and deeper and more wonderful relationship with him. We're experiencing today the God who accepts us. Now, I know this may not jibe with what you learned early about God. I don't know who taught you first about God. Maybe it was a priest or a pastor or parents. And for many of us, we learned some things early about God. Maybe this is what you discovered. As a child, you might have been told that first, God is good. Maybe that God punishes evil and rewards good. Maybe that God answers prayer. This is not a trick question. What do you think about those three? Pretty much. Not bad. But I'd like to suggest that if a child becomes an adult and what she knows for sure about God are these three things, life is going to slap her in the face in ways that are going to cause her to go sideways from here until the end of this thing. Because as true as these things likely are for us, this is not all that God wants us to know for sure about him. There was uh, a Lieutenant Livingston uh, he was a medical doctor, um, officer in the army, was preparing to be deployed uh, into combat, was at Fort Bragg. I think that's North Carolina, isn't it? So uh, some of you have been in the military. Uh, you were enlisted and you knew what it was like to have to train superior officers, right? So the new lieutenant is looking at a map. He's at Fort Bragg. He's supposed to be taking the platoon someplace and he looks confused. So the old crusty 
platoon sergeant who has trained many lieutenants says to the lieutenant, figured out where we are? And the young lieutenant says, well, the map says there's a hill right over there, but I don't see it. And the platoon sergeant said, if the map doesn't match the earth, the map is wrong. Yeah. Sage advice. A good friend for Ann and me over the years, his name is Doug Muir, and he wrote several books. One of them wasn't particularly good, but it's worth buying a used copy if you can, just to put it on your bookshelf to be reminded of the title. Is it true if it doesn't work? I've met some Christians that are very sincere in their faith. They're still living with five-year-old faith, and they are delusional because there's no match between what they believe about God and the reality that they experience. And they are sincere, but their faith is just a weak mess. One thing we know for sure about God, that he accepts us, it could be today that your faith is on life support, And if so, this is going to be some good news for you. Notice this quote from Karen Armstrong. She writes, We often learn about God about the same time we learn about Santa Claus. But our ideas about Santa Claus change, mature, and become more nuanced. Whereas our ideas about God can remain at a rather infantile level. So here's the deal, friends. If your faith stays at the level of a five-year-old's belief in Santa Claus, you are going to have a crisis of faith. Perhaps God never existed. Maybe Jesus is real, but he doesn't accept me. Maybe he doesn't even see me. My prayers don't seem to get answered. If you get sick, come to me for empathy, but I'll promise not to pray for you. When I pray for people, they get worse. It's a crisis of faith, and isn't this where we live from time to time? Sure. So we want to grow in this gap between childhood and adult faith. Maybe your faith doesn't work, or maybe it's incomplete. This is going to be a great talk for you today, because all of us share the same passion. It's to worship a Jesus on Sunday that works and is just as real on Monday. We want a faith that works because it's in a real Jesus. We want a faith that's strong. So in this talk, I want to do like a basketball game, two halves. The first half is we're going to ask the what happened. And the second half, we're going to look at the why it happened. I think you're going to see yourself in the story. Both of them are about the God who accepts us. Now, when we approach this series on one thing I know for sure about God, here's the trick. We're going to go to the Bible to discover that, right? And here's the twist. For about 300 years, people passionately had faith in Jesus without having the Bible. Is that amazing? So when we read Acts today, Acts actually happened before the four gospels, the books of the Bible that tell us the story of Jesus' earthly life were even written. But for 300 years, people had such a passionate faith in Christ that they were actually willing to die for their faith. 
So as grateful as we are and should be that we have the Holy Scripture and that at about 250 or 300 after the common era that Christian leaders got together and actually comprised for us what we believe is the inspired holy sacred Scripture and Word of God for us, people who started out in their faith in the first centuries started at a different place. And I would suggest to you that your faith story started at a different place as well. It started by hearing about from someone else their encounter with the living God and then his coming to match up that claim and him giving you an encounter with him. That's exactly how the Apostle Paul came to faith in Jesus. And so when we read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, and only a few verses are going to go on the screen today, I encourage you, if you have your Bible or device, you might want to turn to Acts chapter 17 in the first half, and then skip over to Romans chapter 3 for the second half. We're going to take a look. If you prefer to listen, I'll be reading along. Acts is a travelogue written by Dr. Luke when he's traveling with Paul and the team, and they're going around and they're planting churches. And Paul finally comes to the ancient city of Athens, Greece. And that's where we discover what happened that day. I'm going to pick it up in Acts 17, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Pause. This is the first time publicly that a preacher was mocked for babbling. If you've already decided that I am or do as I continue the talk today, you have biblical precedent for this right here. Here we go. What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching, notice, preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Pause for a moment. So while Paul is hanging out in Athens waiting for his buddies to show up and he's out having conversations with people, he notices their remarkable devotion to idols. And as he identifies that these people are really sincere in their religious uh, expression. Now, we do the same thing with idols in our culture. Probably none of you or most of you at least don't have some kind of, uh, you know, uh, a sculpture icon in your house, but we have idols that we put before God, and it might be sports, it might be another person, it might be a car, it might be a hobby or whatever. So we're right back there with them. And in this environment, these two different schools of philosophy had representatives. Now, the Epicureans, you can study about them on your own, but basically they said, we've thought about life and we don't have a clue, but have some more wine. <laughs> you know, have fun while you're confused, right? And then there were the Stoics, and they were very, very serious, and they had thought about it, and they said, we know exactly all about life, and if you have a lot of time, we can tell you. Yeah, yeah. But what the two groups had in common was that what Paul had to say was absolutely spellbinding, brand new news. And what captured them is that Paul talked about the resurrection. Nobody talked about dead guys coming back to life. Epicurean, Stoic... Egyptian religion, Greek gods, Roman gods, nobody talked about dead men coming to life. And they said, there's something here that we might be interested in hearing more about. 
Notice in verse 19 that they took him, Paul, and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. Now, Dr. Luke just has to give us some editorial comment. And so here's his parentheses. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. End of parentheses. Done with commentary. So this is cool. Maybe some of you, like Ann and I have, actually traveled to Athens. You can stand there today. There's the Parthenian up on the hill and a little bit lower. There's this area, the Areopagus, where all this philosophic conversation happened. And just down at the bottom of the hill, there was the marketplace where Paul went talking to the, to the merchants about. So there's the merchants and there's the philosophers. And then there's this huge, religious, gorgeous, still ruins of a temple up on the hill. This happened in real space time. And Paul is standing between the common merchants and he's standing between this temple up here and he's standing with all these idols around and he says, I'm bringing a message that you have never heard before. It's about a dead guy who came back to life. Amazing. You're talking strange stuff, they said. What was strange? The resurrection. A dead man living. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Awesome. Now, this wasn't a slam. He wasn't saying you're stupid and dumb. He was saying you're smart, religious, and uncertain. You are underinformed. And I'm going to tell you some information that is going to put some substance behind this God that you are searching for but have not been able to understand. Now, these folks were just in case religious people. Just in case we missed the right God. We don't want to offend anybody, so we'll just slap to whomever on it. And if we got the wrong one or wrong ones, you can just, we've been taking care of business, cover the bases, right? Yeah. Hey, we do it, don't we? Yeah. So some of us are CEO Christians, you know, Christmas and Easter only, you know, do that, do that thing. And we love CEOs around here. It's awesome. We, we love that. Many of you have come to faith or have come back to faith because of that kind of cultural, religious sense of interest, if not obligation. And, and some of us wear crosses around and some of us do prayers at night and we do all kinds of, for some of us, those are, let's cover the basis. So these are the cover the basis people. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the, the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands like the Parthenian up there. Is it called the Parthenian? It's the Parthenon. Thank you. You can talk back to me anytime and say, right now, we love you, but you do not know what you're talking about. Any time, that's okay. And I'll, I'll try. It's, it's that other one that starts with P that's up there. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. <laughs> really. Rather, notice this, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. We just sang it. He is our very breath. 
He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need you crossing all the bases. Whatever, whatever it is that you do that's just in case, he has given you life itself. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundary of their lands. Number three, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far off from any of us. Hmm. Three things we discover for sure about this God who accepts us. First of all, the crux of your faith in God is all about the dead man coming back to life. That's what differentiates Christianity and Christian faith from any other philosophy or religion. The dead one came back to life. And they all got that. Those smart people in Athens, they got that. If you can give me proof about a dead man that came back to life, you have got my attention. And then Paul generalizes out as he tells about this God, and he says, this God is comprehensive and all-encompassing. In fact, he's the one that gave breath to everything that is alive. And this God doesn't need any of your stuff. Trust me, he has it all. And this God has positioned himself so close to you that in your groping in the darkness for truth, If you just reach out, you will find him. A God who accepts us. Awesome. Powerful. A God who reached out to us. What Paul is saying is, you guys had a long time to think about all the stuff you think about. But I'm here to tell you that 20 years ago, something fundamental happened. It is the apex of human history because the dead man came back to life. And that changed everything. The dead one, Jesus Christ, son of God, came back to life, and now you get to make a decision about what you're going to do with that proof that there's a God who accepts you. You can reach out and accept, or you can choose not to do that. But repentance is a change of mind that says, I'm going to shift from my conception about God and my response to God, and I'm going to shift that. I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going to place the weight of trust of my life on a person. And that's dangerous because a philosophy can never catch you, nor can a dead guy, but a living God can. The decision to put our trust in a living God. And so we discover that God gives a path of confidence even when we are uncertain. And this is where we wrap it in this chapter in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Some of you are really smart and you know what that kind of word is called. It sounds like what it means. What is that word? Thank you. See, you're all smart. One of those words, sneered, and others of them, it says, said. Hmm. So when you're confronted with the resurrection of Jesus, your two options are the Athenian options. You can sneer or you can say. The sneer says, you got to be kidding me. Hogwash, crazy talk. I'm out of here. 
But what some of the Athenities said was, and I quote, we want to hear you again on this subject. And after that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. I just love this. I love it that the youngest, smallest, freshest, most infant faith of people in Athens that had only heard the good news of the resurrection of God's Son expressed faith by saying, I want to. Isn't that good news? Wherever you are on your first faith journey, faith says, I want to. I want to know more. I want to hear more. I want to test this more. I want to trust this a little more. And whether you are coming to faith, discovering Christ's claims, or whether or not you have walked a committed relationship with Jesus for decades, our faith crisis is always a decision about to sneer or to say. And faith always moves forward when we say, I want to. And God always meets us at the I want to. So Dr. Luke, in his travelogue, has told us how things originally worked as people came to faith in Jesus, this God who accepts us. Before we move to the second half, I have to tell you about an experience that Ann and I had this week. Uh, We were at a place uh, hanging out. We had a few hours that we needed to do something with, and we happened to find ourselves in a high-end mall. Now, I don't generally go to high-end malls. I'm not sophisticated enough to even be there. But I have learned some things about high-end malls. So we walked into a coach handbag store. And uh, I was aware that Ann's handbag uh, was a designer handbag. Not a knockoff. A real deal. I wasn't about to tell anybody that it came from a factory outlet store that was the discount after the sale after the discount. But Ann was packing the right kind of bag. It wasn't a coach. It was the right kind of bag. So we walk in the store. I know the deal. You know the deal. We walk in the store and we're greeted very pleasantly by a salesperson and she talks and how are you doing today? It's so nice to see you and where are you from? And then she says to Anne, I really like your shoes. You know what's going on here. She says to Anne, Anne says, thing. she says, where did you get them? Now I'm thinking to myself, this could be interesting. Because this salesperson is deciding whether or not we're there to buy or to steal. (laughs) And the answer to this question, where did you get your shoes, is going to put us in one of those categories. I am married to a brilliant woman. She had momentary amnesia. And she said, I'm not sure. And I had just enough good sense to say, I think you got him a DSW with a 20% off coupon thing right there. (laughs) So here's the deal in life. Our little experience in the coach store is the experience of life. It's living in a competitive environment. It's living in a zero-sum game. If they get, I lose. You're either here to buy or to steal. 
And we all go through life wondering if we're going to find ourselves in the preferred group. And we bring that suspicion of scarcity and failure into our relationship with God. And the very first people in Athens that came to faith in God heard a message that he died for all that he had made. And that he is near as we grope for truth to just reach out with a want to. And that's where we find him. So in the second half, Paul, a few years later, is writing a letter that we call the Romans to Christians that are in that also great ancient city, and he's giving them the why. So we saw what happened in Athens. In Romans, he's telling us why that took place. Why is it that God has reached out to accept us in this no matter who you are, which is what we're going to read in a moment after I talk about the passage, we're going to actually read a few verses. No matter who you are. Now, if your name is Bill here today, my apologies in advance. I'm not talking about you. If you have an Uncle Bill today, I'm not talking about him. Uncle Bill is just our name, okay? All of us have an Uncle Bill. Is he going to come to Thanksgiving this year? He always comes to Thanksgiving this year. Even him? Yeah, even Uncle Bill. Whoever he is, whoever she is, whoever they are in your life, God's reach accepts all. That means you. Last service, I mentioned Uncle Bill. One of the women came up afterwards, and she said, I have an Uncle Bill. And I began to apologize, and she said, don't. Nothing you said is nearly as bad as he is. Yeah. It's a great story. Grew up someplace out in the desert, and Uncle Bill was out changing irrigation, and she was out with him, and she was a second grader. Just go ahead and imagine a second grader in your world. Sweet little second grade girl. Uncle Bill sees a rattlesnake. Uncle Bill puts a plastic bucket over the rattlesnake. And says to her, sit on this until I come back. I need to go drive over to the house and bring my shotgun back and kill him. (laughs) She sat on the bucket holding the rattlesnake. That's Uncle Bill. See, does God really accept Uncle Bill's? Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, everybody. And I want to know how this works because I'm an Uncle Bill much of the time. And I'm aware of that. Not really, Lauren and Jordan. (laughs) Never put your kids on a rattlesnake. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we get around to this goofy thinking? By the way, I'm just going to denigrate these connection cards, which I hope you all love and use today, but closest thing I could come to list with checking the boxes. So let me tell you, let me tell you about Christendom. Christianity has had several major movements. Let me mention three of them that have influenced my life. Uh, The first one is liturgy. Uh, my maternal grandfather was Roman Catholic. My maternal grandmother was, was very Synod Lutheran. And uh, both of those movements are quite liturgical. By the way, you're going to hear me being respectful about all three of these. Yeah. I think you can have a robust relationship with God in all three of these fields. Nothing wrong with the fields. The problem is the checklists. So if I'm involved in a liturgical church and the focus is on the things that we do liturgically in our worship together, I might think that if I check the liturgical boxes that that's the right relationship with God. And so I'm baptized as a, as a kid and, and I go through catechism classes and I first communion, uh, there's my confirmation and maybe I'm married in the church and now I'm going to repeat that cycle with others. And if I'm devout, I'll go to confessional By the way, I don't know how priests live. If some of them drink too much of the ceremonial wine afterwards, I... There we go. 
Go to Mass regularly? Now, can you have a robust relationship with God in a liturgical environment? Absolutely. Those things can be rich and fulfilling. But what if they become just boxes to check? Empty, void religion. There's another major stream. This is much newer for us, uh, uh, the last few hundred years. But much of uh, Christianity in the United States uh, came out of what we call the holiness movement. You could have a passionate, growing, wonderful, loving relationship with Jesus and be a holiness person, but, but holiness people have checklists about things to do. Right? If you're really God's child, then you're called to be perfect just as Jesus is perfect. And so we can define what perfection looks like, and we can put it on a long card, much, much longer than this, you understand. And what you do as you strive across the course of your life is to be better and better, more and more like God. Anything wrong with being more like God? No. But if the checklist becomes my focus and not the relationship that draws me forward toward this transformational life, then it is a vacuous religious checklist. My own direct influence was Mennonite, which comes out of the Pietistic movement, which was one of the wings of the Reformation back in, what, the 15th, 16th century. And so some followed Luther and continued liturgical kind of worship, some others were reformed in some different ways that had free worship. And then my own pietistic heritage were folks that ended up with their own lists. To be really pious, you need two things. First is you need to be very serious, which is why I don't tell jokes well. So when I talk about laugh at my, my uh, awkward attempts at humor, yeah, I'm still trying to get past this thing. Very, very serious. And the other thing, we have a long list of things not to do. Liturgy, worship these ways. Holiness, do these things. Pietistics, don't do these things. So I learned lots of things not to do. Yeah. So when uh, my older sister came home from first grade, so what is she, six years old or something? Is that right? Yeah. She comes home and she's all excited because it's the first time she's been in school at Christmas and they had a gift exchange and she got a, she got a game. She got a deck of old maid cards. Hmm? Not on the list. <laughs> yeah. So this was the family experience. Um, I think I might have mentioned that I came around much later. So this is family lore. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the story. The old deck cards came into the house. The family went over to the wood-burning stove in the living room. The stove came open. The cards went in. They watched them burn up because that's on our list. Yeah, no cards, no TV, no movies. And by the way, uh, probably uh, avoiding some of those things from time to time would serve us all well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Dancing. Oh, man. I don't dance. Can't dance. If you try to make me dance, I won't. <laughs> I came by this honestly. Good pietists do not dance. That guy back in the Old Testament did, but he lost his clothes and only had his underwear left. So. <laughs> Do you need more proof than that? No. <laughs> so uh, my family trained our elementary school. By the time I came along, principal, teachers all knew the scope. This kid won't dance. His sister didn't dance. His brother didn't dance. And so they'd already figured out how to accommodate the Roth family during square dancing in PD. So what I got to do was be special. So when everybody else was square dancing, 
I got to clean the erasers for my classroom. The chalkboard erasers? Awesome, special, yeah. And uh, I had to do it down in the boiler room. So my special treat was to go with the erasers that were all full of chalk and go to the boiler room. And I came back just covered with eraser dust. Very special indeed. Very special indeed. Don't dance. Don't tell anybody, but I may surprise Ann someday and take some dance lessons. Just might happen. But if you get me a certificate, I will not use it. I just want to use my time. Yeah. So some of us come, some of us come from these backgrounds that suggest that checklists are ultimately what really get us accepted and acceptable. Why did this really happen? Well, Romans chapter 3 teaches us some things about this invitation to trust the one who really does accept us and is near. Four things that we're going to discover. We'll look at the four things first, and then we'll read it. It says that God decided to set this all up for us, and he decided that he was going to patiently wait for us because he knows these four things about us. Number one, he knows that we couldn't solve our sin problem, and so he came to forgive us. He died and rose. God knows that we'd have disappointments and baggage. And so he sent his son to us to be with us. God knows that we'd have doubts. And so he's patient with us. And God knows that we needed a starting point of faith. And so he died and rose to accept us. Your starting point of faith never was, cannot be, never will be figuring all of the Bible out. It will be reaching out for a relationship to one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you, came back to life as proof of his living ability, the one who gave breath to all of us and says, if you just reach out with a, I want to, you'll find me there. It says this, Romans 21. I'm going to read in the message version, it says, but in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become the Jesus setting things right for us. Notice the screen. And this happened not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him, for there's no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this, this long and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we were utterly incapable of living the glorious lives God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he puts us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. And he got us out of the mess we're in and restored to us, us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did this by the names of, would you read his name out loud with me? Jesus Christ. Yeah. The big question is, who is Jesus? And God answered my son in the resurrection. And he reached out to us and them. 
What group are you a part of? And what makes them them? The human condition is to create us and them. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, had had the same mixture of people that the very first followers of Christ did in Athens. There were, there were Jews and there were God-fearing Greeks, us and them, historically, culturally, linguistically, religiously, socially separated from each other, easy division of us and them. The human condition is to constantly decide what is the us group that I identify with and the them group that I do not. Paul says, here's the deal. The one thing that all of the us and the them have in common is we've all messed up royally. We are all far from God. We have all failed in sin. None of us can solve that problem on our own. Why don't we get over the us and them about this? We are all equally messed up. And we all equally need a solution and a savior. And so can't we come in a response to this savior the one whose reach is so large that he can reach out to all of us. Well, and this is your lucky day. Well, actually, these roses aren't that great. They once looked good. And then somebody cut them off and made them die. Ugly little crusty stems down here. I'm not going to ask because I don't want you to have to confess this publicly, but how many of you have watched at least one entire episode of The Bachelor? Yeah, just rhetorical question. Oh, Dr. Chad, I saw your hand. Yeah. 22 seasons of The Bachelor, four spinoff shows. Now, I've, uh, I've had a guilty pleasure of dipping in a time or two to the... The Bachelor, and, and uh, he always looks a lot better than me. Yeah, a lot better. Yeah. So the premise of The Bachelor, of course, is that there's the either the guy or the bachelorette, the girl who are eligible and available, and then there's 25 love interests. Right? And so it all starts out, and <clears throat> we want to be impressive, and and then I guess the way the show's end, you'll have to tell me, but I think. Most of them end with a, a tray of roses. That's how they end? Yeah. So, Matt, it's your lucky day. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you're the bachelor. I'm already, I'm already, yeah. I'm already chosen. Yeah. You'd, you'd better do that. And uh, I'm in so deep now with Kathy that I'll never, I'll never get out of this one. Never is it. So at the end of the episode, Matt takes a rose and he holds it, the one I saw, for way too long. Yes. Okay, just get it over with now. Yeah. Right. And, and he gives the rose to the ones that are going to be kept. So it's like musical chairs, except it's musical roses. Okay. Someone's going to lose and go home. And in the last episode, there are the two finalists. And Matt says to Kathy, I choose you. Yay! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so here's the deal. 
that expresses how this world works. It's zero sum. You're chosen for some, you're not for others. You finally get to school and somebody chooses teams. If you have the athletic abilities of me, you get chosen by default at the end. You make it through school and you get chosen, whether or not to be in the smart kid track or some other track. And you apply for college. And if you're aspirational, you'll probably be rejected by many of those. And you apply for work. And it's resume after resume. And life feels like it's a zero-sum game. And maybe if you're lucky enough, you'll be chosen along the way. And here's the deal. That psychology that is wired and woven into our psyche can so easily come into our misunderstanding of the God who is. This is one thing we know for sure about God. He accepts you. We know this for sure about God, that he gave you life and breath and purpose. We know this for sure about God, that he has included you in his embrace There's lots of roses on his tray. And one thing we know for sure about God is he is very close to you. So perhaps, as I quote Paul in in, uh, Acts, perhaps you might reach out for him and find him. He's just an I want to away. God, you understand that We grope and we wander. We wonder and we question. We're uncertain. Thank you for the resurrection. That is your proof that you do love us and that you're with us. Help us, Lord, not hold ourselves back, but to reach out to you with an I want to have a relationship with God through the forgiveness of my sins, the fullness of the Spirit, and an ongoing relationship that doesn't require checklists, but is likely going to be my growing more like you. Let nothing hold me back, Lord. Would you sing this song with the band?